Our lesson of the day is from James chapter 2. I will begin in verse 13. Here again, the Word of God. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brother? And if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by his works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today and that we would not be mere hearers of the word, but that we would become more and more doers of your word, that you might be glorified in our lives and that we might hear you say to us at the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master's inheritance. Father, this is what we long to hear from you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, or really the last couple times we've been in James 2, we have been looking at what this chapter teaches on the relationship of faith and works. And we have seen that a faith that is alone, that is a faith that does not produce works, is dead and demonic. Such faith cannot save. Such faith is worse than worthless. James ends the chapter saying that faith without deeds is like a lifeless, breathless corpse. And remember in Judaism that dead bodies are unclean. James wants us to see that a faith that does not produce works is repulsive. He wants us to be disgusted by even the very thought of such a thing. Throughout the first two chapters of this letter, James is dealing with the problem of self-deception, what we might call hypocrisy. He's addressing those who turn the grace of God into a license for sinful, selfish living, who basically say how we live doesn't matter. And again and again, James says, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. Sin leads to death. Don't be deceived. Hearing without doing is useless. He says you can't merely talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And so he's warning them, beware of phony faith, beware of counterfeit faith, beware of fake faith that does not work, that does not produce good deeds, deeds of love. Real faith obeys, and we see that, James illustrates it for us, in the lives of Abraham and Rahab. 
The Bible never pits faith against good works. They always go together. They can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. The kind of faith James is critiquing really could be understood as a kind of intellectual assent, where all the right truths are known, the right ideas are in the head, but it doesn't produce any kind of life transformation. It doesn't really take root in a person's life. This faith has good wishes instead of good deeds. It says to the poor, be warm and filled, but does nothing to help them. This faith can be liturgically correct. It says, go in peace at the end of the worship service. It's doctrinally correct. It confesses the Shema, that God is one. But these things, James shows us, are not sufficient. The liturgy and the creed are wonderful, but they must be expressions of a working, loving, merciful, obedient faith, or they amount to nothing. Remember, James says, even the demons have sound doctrine. There are no atheists in hell. The demons can recite the Shema. Uh, Even demons know God is one. You can't just say the right thing or worship with the right forms. You have to live the right way. Faith alone saves, but not a faith that is alone. True faith, saving faith, is a working faith, an active faith. James says, show me your faith. That's his challenge to us. Show me your faith by what you do. Show me your faith by your deeds. Real faith is not merely sentimental, wishing others well, but doing nothing to help them. It's not merely liturgical, exclaiming, go in peace. It's not merely creedal, confessing God is one. No, real faith is transformative. Real faith makes a difference in how we live. It means our hearts and lives are transformed. There is external evidence of this internal faith. Faith works. Faith obeys. It's interesting, Martin Luther, for all his negativity about James, as we talked about last time, Martin Luther got it right when he said this. He said, real faith is a living, busy, active, mighty thing. For it is impossible for true faith not to be doing good works incessantly. Luther says, real faith never asks whether good works are to be done. It has already done them before the question can be asked and is always doing them. Whoever does not do such works is an unbeliever. Thus it is impossible to separate works from faith, just as it is impossible to separate heat and light from fire. That's Martin Luther. Whereas the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians, what counts is faith working through love, or as Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 12, the tree is known by its fruits. A good tree is going to bear good fruit, even as an evil tree will bear evil fruit. And thus will be cut down and cast into the fire. But you know, all of that, that's not really the controversial part of this passage. Uh, James not only deals with the faith works relationship, he deals with the works justification relationship. When you read through James 2, there's just this, it just hits you again and again. Justified by works, that phrase just jumps off the page again and again and again. And this is really where the controversy lies, especially since the Reformation When men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others championed the grace of God by teaching justification by faith alone. By faith alone, they taught we are united to Christ who is the just one. He is the righteous one. By faith, we are united to him. And so by faith, we come to share in his righteous status. Faith alone unites us to Christ. Works can't do that. So works don't have any business in this. 
teaching on justification. That's what Luther and Calvin taught. And it is true, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. But you know what? James is also in the Bible. James, the apostle, says in James 2.24, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And there's the sticking point. What James says about working faith, that's not the hard part. The hard part really is what he says about justification and how he connects works to justification. That's what creates the difficulty. In Romans 3, 4, and 5, Paul says again and again, we are justified by faith. He says we're justified by grace. He says we're justified by the blood of Christ. And then there's James who says in 2.24, we are justified by works. All these statements are in the same Bible. They're inspired by the same God. The same Holy Spirit wrote these words through these apostles. They must fit together some way. But how? What could James mean? How do works justify? Well, let me start with this because really we, we've, we've got to, we can only understand this if we really approach it in submission to Scripture. So let me start with this. The question is not, do we believe in justification by works? We most certainly do. We have to. It's in the Bible. It's there three times in James 2 in verse 21, 24, 25. The question is not, do we believe in justification by works? We do. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in justification by works? How do works justify? And how does this justification by works fit together with justification by faith? Now, a lot of attempts have been made to reconcile Paul and James on this issue to show how James 2 is compatible with Romans 4, so there's not really a contradiction. I tell you, a lot of those attempts are unhelpful and unconvincing, and I'm not going to test your patience, or mine for that matter, by going through them and evaluating them. I, I don't think that's the most important thing here instead. What I want to do, very simple, I want to make two key observations about the text to help you understand what James means by justification. And then I want to raise an answer to crucial objections to those observations. So two observations, two objections should be very simple, right? First observation is this. The context for James's teaching here on justification is the final judgment. This is so important to see. It's a justification that comes after works have been done. Indeed, it's a justification that is linked with the eschatological judgment, the final judgment. And this is what you must notice about the passage. In fact, you'll note every week when I read this passage, I actually start back in verse 13. Really, we could even start in verse 12. Verse 12, he says, we will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Well, when are we going to be judged? Well, there are judgments certainly in history, but the judgment is at the last day. Old Testament, New Testament, one book after another, and the Scripture teaches that. There is a final judgment when all of us will stand before God's judgment throne. And James says in verse 12, we will be judged by the law of liberty. And then verse 13, he says, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
verses 12 and 13. Now, verse 14 does start a new section. Section markers in James are basically come when he says, my brothers. That, that marks the start of a new section, and he does that in verse 14. But as we've seen before, as we've worked our way through this letter, all of James' sections are linked. It's not like he scraps what he was just talking about and begins something completely new. All of these sections are linked. Uh, there is a logical connection. They build on one another. They're connected in various ways. So at the end of the first section in James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, James has just brought God's final judgment into the picture. He's made that part of the discussion, this final judgment. And so the natural question is, who will be justified in the final judgment? Who's going to be justified and who's going to be condemned? Who will be acquitted or vindicated on that day? And who's going to be condemned on that day? It's looking ahead. There's this eschatological context. It's looking ahead to the last day when God judges us all. And that's the very question that James proceeds to answer in verses 14 to 26. Who will receive mercy in the final judgment? Who will be judged with mercy at the last day? And James makes it clear. It's those who, as an outworking of their faith, have shown mercy to others. Who will be justified at the last day? Those who, out of faith, have obeyed God. Who have demonstrated their faith by doing works of obedience. Those are the ones who will be justified at the last day when God judges us. And this fits really well with a lot of other scriptures when you start to think about it. It means James 2 is not some really unusual passage in the Bible. There are a host of other passages we could point to. One of the most obvious ones is Matthew 25, which is very much like this text in James chapter 22. There in Matthew 25, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus tells basically a parable. It's a a prophetic passage about the final judgment. And Jesus will separate the sheep and the goats. And how will he judge them? Well, it is a judgment according to works. Those who are justified in Matthew 25 are justified by their works. The sheep, those identified as sheep, are judged mercifully. Why? Because they have shown mercy. They've shown mercy to the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the sick. They have shown mercy in this life. And so at the last day, they are shown mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment in their case. They are justified. They are approved. They are vindicated. Jesus says to them in Matthew 25, Come and enter into the joy of your inheritance. They enter into eternal glory. And it's clear, they're justified by their works. And these are not works done out of merit. After all, their reward is called an inheritance, which is a gift. It's not something earned. But it shows these are the ones who manifested their faith in their works, and they're judged according to their works, and they're justified by their works. Their works are brought forward as evidence at the last day. And then, of course, you have the goats, And there's evidence there, or really you could say the lack of evidence there, and so they are condemned by their works. The works they failed to do. They failed to show mercy, and so they are shown no mercy. So Jesus and James teach the same thing about the final judgment. James learned well from the Master. But it's not just James. You know what? Paul also teaches this. So interesting how this often gets neglect. James 2 also fits really well with what the Apostle Paul teaches about the final judgment. Yes, Paul teaches the exact same thing. Uh, Paul's in complete agreement with James about the final judgment. 
this final judgment according to works. And so we read in Romans 2 this morning where Paul says it is the doers of the law who will be, that's future tense, looking ahead to the final judgment, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, who are these doers of the law? They're the ones who have had the law written on their hearts. That's the fulfillment of the other passage we read this morning, Jeremiah 31, the promise of a new covenant, where the Holy Spirit will write the law on the hearts of God's people. And here you've got Gentiles who clearly have been brought into this new covenant. They show that the law has been written on their hearts by the Holy Spirit, by the way that they live. And so, therefore, they will be justified at the last day. They have become doers of the law by the working of God's Spirit. Paul teaches the same thing as James about the final judgment. But it's not just Romans 2. There are a host of other passages we could point to. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of my favorites. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We make it our aim to please the Lord because we know we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive his due for what he has done in the body. What you do in your body, you'll be judged for at the last day. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul says that's why we are motivated and driven to please the Lord in the here and now because we know what's coming when we will stand before the judgment seat of God and our works will be judged. We be justified or condemned according to our works. That's no different than what James is teaching in James chapter 2. Our faith produces fruit. That fruit is going to be inspected at the last day. Good trees that have borne good fruit will be justified, will be declared righteous at the last day. That's one observation. That's a key observation to make. James 2 teaches nothing different than what you will find about the final judgment in the whole rest of the Bible. Whether you're talking about Jesus or Paul, it's in the book of Revelation, you can find it in the Old Testament. Uh, It's all over Scripture. A final judgment according to works. There's a second observation we need to make. Look at the example of Abraham. This is the most fully developed example uh, that James gives. And so it's worth looking at closely. It's also worth looking at closely because Abraham is also Paul's example, Paul's illustration in Romans chapter 4 when Paul is seeking to show we're justified by faith apart from works. So it's interesting, Abraham is the key figure in Paul's discussion of justification apart from works and in James' discussion of justification by works. But here's the key thing to notice. Here's the key observation. When was Abraham justified? When was Abraham justified? Well, actually, it's kind of a trick question. uh, Because in James 2, we find that Abraham is justified more than once. More than once, in a sense, he steps into God's law court and receives a verdict. James quotes from Genesis 15.6. That is also Paul's key proof text. When Paul is teaching we are justified by faith apart from works, where does Paul go? He reaches into the Old Testament and grabs Genesis 15.6. Well, here James grabs hold of the same verse. What does that verse say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or counted to him for righteousness. Righteousness is just another word for justification. Abraham believed God and he was justified. Genesis 15.6 says Abraham was justified by faith. 
James cites that passage. In Romans 4, Paul uses that same text to establish his doctrine of justification by faith alone. And James agrees with that. In Genesis 15, Paul and James both agree. Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. Abraham trusted God's promise and was justified. He was declared righteous or counted righteous by faith. Now, I think it's interesting. The promise that Abraham believed in Genesis 15 is specifically the promise of a seed. If you want to know why Abraham's justification is there, this is why. That's when the promise of the seed, the promise of a son is given. See, justifying faith is explicitly messianic faith. It's directed to the son God promises to send. It's directed towards Jesus. When Abraham believed God's promise in Genesis 15, 6, he was really trusting in Jesus ahead of time. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham is justified by faith alone. James and Paul both agree with that. They both use that text to prove that point. But you know what? James goes on from there and tells us Abraham was justified again in Genesis 22 when he offered up his promised son, Isaac, as a sacrifice according to God's command. And Abraham is declared righteous again, but now not by faith alone. Rather, now in Genesis 22, he is justified by works. Or as James also says, by faith and works working together. There's a kind of synergy between his faith and his works leading to justification. And James tells us this justification event fulfills the earlier justification event, even as Abraham's works complete his faith. So when Abraham was declared righteous by faith alone in Genesis 15, 6, that pointed ahead to a future justification when Abraham would be declared by faith and by the works that faith produced. And so this is the pattern. And you got to remember here that for both James and Paul, Abraham is not just any believer chosen at random. He is the believer. He is the prototype. He is the model of faith. He's the model of justification. He shows us what justification means, how it works for both Paul and James. And what do we find? He is justified initially by faith alone, He is justified finally by works, works that arise from faith and demonstrate his faith. And that's really the way to make sense out of all of this. See, in Romans 3 and 4, when Paul is at pains to show that we are justified through grace by faith in Christ apart from works, what is he talking about? He's talking about our initial justification, How we get that initial declaration of righteousness. How our status is changed. By nature, we are under God's wrath and condemnation. And then like Abraham, we put our trust in the promised seed. We put our trust in Jesus. And that condemnation is turned to justification. God changes our status. He forgives us and acquits us of all charges. He accepts us fully as righteous in His sight. But that's not the only time God pronounces a verdict over us. At the last day, we will stand before the great white throne of judgment. And our works will be brought forward as evidence. And He will publicly pass a verdict over our lives. And if we have done good as a pattern of life, God will rule in our favor 
justifying us according to our works. We will be openly vindicated. Our earlier justification will be fulfilled and confirmed. If we have done evil as a pattern of life, our works will show the justice of God in condemning us. In James 2, verse 14, James asks, Can such a faith save? Can a workless faith save? Note, it's future tense. It's looking ahead to final salvation, the final phase of our salvation. What kind of faith saves in the future, in the judgment, at the last day? And James is showing us the only kind of faith that will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, the only kind of faith that will be justified and vindicated at the last day is a faith that in the here and now produces works. Why? Because we are going to be judged according to our works at the last day. So if you want to kind of start to put all of this together, James 2 and Romans 2 have to do with what we could call final justification. Romans 3 and Romans 4 have to do with what we could call initial justification. The difference has to do with timing. And once that element of timing is brought in, you see, there really is no tension. There's no more tension between Paul and James than there is between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Paul and James fit together just as well as Genesis 15 and 22 fit together. Now look, because of the Reformation and the issues that were raised at the Reformation, we tend to focus entirely on initial justification. And that makes sense because that is the really big thing. That is the decisive thing. Once you're justified, you've gone from being condemned to now being acquitted and vindicated. That's a glorious thing, that transition. That kind of transition doesn't take place at the last day. The last day is confirming what was already true of you, but in this open and public kind of way in the judgment seat before God. So initial justification got all the attention in the Reformation in the 16th century because of issues with the Roman Catholic Church, and that was entirely appropriate. But the Reformers did not completely ignore this second or final justification. In fact, they spoke about it quite a bit. A number of them did. A number of the systematizers who came after the Reformation continued to speak about it. But we've got to have the whole package. We've got to understand how it all fits together. How do we get right with God? How do we get our sins forgiven? How do we escape condemnation? The condemnation we deserve because of our sin? By putting our trust in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, we share in His righteous status before the Father. That's your initial justification. There's a justification that comes at the beginning of the Christian life, apart from works before any works have been done or could be done. This is the justification of sinners. But there is also a justification that comes at the end of the Christian life after we have done works, when we will be judged by our works. This is the justification of the righteous. In the first justification, God accepts our persons in Christ. In that final justification, God accepts our works in Christ. To put it in Trinitarian terms, in the first justification, the Father approves of Christ's work for us. In the final justification, the Father approves of the Spirit's work in us. 
at the beginning of the Christian life. It's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. At the end of the Christian life, at the last day, God says in the language of Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, do not appear before me empty-handed. Bring your works, bring the works of your hands to offer to me. We've got a great picture of both of these justifications in our liturgy every single week. We have a picture of initial justification when we confess our sins and forgiveness is declared. And we've got a great picture of final justification in the offertory when we offer the works of our hands to God and He accepts them. At the beginning of the Christian life, God says to you, you are forgiven and accepted just the way you are. At the end of the Christian life, God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, as He pronounces us justified according to the works He has worked in us. So justification unfolds in two phases. And you know what? That's not really unusual. When does the resurrection happen for believers? Well, in one sense, we're already raised up with Christ. We already share in Christ's resurrection life. There's an already dimension to the resurrection. But of course, we all know there's a future and final aspect to our resurrection as well, when our bodies will be raised at the last day. There's an initial initial resurrection and final resurrection. Same with glorification. We're glorified in some way as soon as we're united to Christ. We're glorified already, past tense. Romans 8 says that. But there's also a, a greater glory, a final phase of our glorification that is still to come. Everything the New Testament says about our salvation has this definitive initial phase and this final full phase. And justification is not any different. We might say, what then happens in between initial justification by faith alone and Christ alone and the final justification according to spirit-wrought works. What happens in between? What happens in between is the Christian life. What happens in between is your faith is growing and maturing and manifesting itself in an obedient life. What's happening is your faith is working itself out. What is the link between initial and final justification? It is this obedient, working faith. What comes between initial justification and final justification? It's the growth of your faith, the completion and maturation of your faith. It's the manifestation of your faith in the fruit of good works. Just as it was for Abraham. What happened for Abraham between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22? Abraham wasn't perfect, but Abraham continued to obey God. And he grew in his faith. And so it is for you between your initial and your final justification. Now, those are two observations. Let me quickly deal with two objections. First, somebody might say, okay, so you're saying James 2 deals with final justification, with the final judgment. But when you look at the examples James gives of Abraham and Rahab, they're justified by works not at the last day, not in the final law court, not in the final judgment at the end, but it's something that happens in their lives while they're still on earth. In other words, this justification by works is not at the end of history, but in the middle of history. Well, yes, that's true. But, you know, pretty much everything we know about the final judgment, we know through what the Bible calls type, or what we could call typology, where the Bible gives us pictures and models of what is to come at the last day in history. See, these events in their lives, in the lives of Abraham and Rahab, are judgments of God that take place in history, but they point ahead to the final judgment 
And that's something you see all over the place in Scripture. So, for example, the flood in Noah's day is a type, a picture of that final judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem, what happened in 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, is an historical type of the final judgment, the final judgment according to works. God gives us these pictures in history of what he will do at the last day. Indeed, after our initial justification by faith alone, God justifies us by faith and works continually. And so think about your own life. God continually justifies you. Every time a Christian suffers faithfully, God vindicates him. That's the lesson of Job. The book of Job is about the justification of Job. Job had been accused. Job remains faithful. And at the end, he is justified. And that justification, the rightness of God's declaration over his life is manifested in how Job maintained his unswerving righteousness, his unswerving loyalty to God, even through great suffering and even through all these accusations that were brought against him. He's justified at the end of the book. Every time we overcome temptation and obey, God justifies us. He says, you are righteous. Every time we show mercy to someone in need, God mercifully declares us to be in the right that is, members of his justified people. So that's one objection. Let me give you one final objection here. And I think this one is really, really important. So crucial to understand this for living the Christian life. And this is one, this is an objection that is not directly addressed by James. I think you have to go to other places in Scripture to really answer it. I think James took some things for granted that maybe we're not as aware of today. But this is important to clear away any final confusion about this. You might say, well, okay, that, that makes sense, what you've said. That makes sense on paper. You know, I see this twofold justification. I see that, yes, there is a final judgment according to works in which the doers of the law will be justified. That's in the Bible. I see that. But here's the problem. I'm not a doer of the law. I don't have any good works. I've never done anything truly good. Even my best deeds are still stained with sin. I've never done anything perfect in my life. My works are just filthy rags like the prophet Isaiah talked about. So how can I be saved? How can I be justified at the last day? How can I be justified by my works when I really don't have any good works? I've seen, I've heard a lot of Christians say exactly that when confronted with this teaching. And I think it's a great question because it gets right at the heart of so many things. Can Christians do good works? Do we perform good works? Do we ever do, have you ever done anything in your life that pleased God? Have you ever done anything that made God happy? How you answer that question will go a long way to determining the quality of your Christian life. Because if you think you live under God's frown, you're going to have a hard time. If you know you live under His smile, it's going to be very different. See, it's my job as a pastor not just to convict you and challenge you, but also to comfort and console you. And that's what I want to do here because this too is part of the gospel. The gospel is about the forgiveness of sins, but it's also about how God works in our lives. And I will say this to you as a faithful Christian congregation. God thinks more highly of your obedience than you do. God thinks more highly of your works than you do. Now, we've been programmed by a certain tradition and a certain way of speaking really to continually run ourselves down and basically to describe everything we do only in terms of its sinfulness. I mean, one one Presbyterian preacher put it this way. He said, with what disgust, contempt, and hatred 
Christ must look upon every second of our lives. I mean, does, is Christ really disgusted with you and the way you live every second of your life? I'm here to tell you, no, that is not true. This Presbyterian preacher got it wrong. God is not disgusted with everything you do. God does hate your sin, but not everything you do is sinful. And I know that because I've seen how you live your lives. I've seen you demonstrate your faith. I've seen you do the works of love that spring from faith. By faith, by grace, by the power of God's Spirit, we really do good works. Good works that are really good, truly good, and that are pleasing to God. When Paul says we make it our aim to please God, that's not a fool's errand. I think God was really pleased with things the Apostle Paul did. And I think He's really pleased with things you do in your life as well. What does God think of your efforts? Good works can be truly good without being perfectly good. God's hard to satisfy. We all know that. God's hard to satisfy. But He's easy to please. And you should feel God's pleasure in your obedience. We think that it is the essence of Christian maturity to run ourselves down, to to denigrate ourselves, to to self-deprecate. I'm a holy worm. I could never do anything right. It sounds so pious. But actually, when you speak that way about yourself as a Christian, you are shortchanging God's grace. You're insulting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says God sent His Son and His Spirit so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. He says that we have the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. We can put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and so live. We really can walk in the Spirit. You really can and do put a smile on God's face. And if God enjoys your obedience, you should enjoy obeying. If God is happy with you, you should be happy with what God's doing in your life. Again, not everything. We're still, we still sin. We know that. I don't have to convince you of that. But I do have to convince you of this, that you really do good works and God is happy with them. The Bible describes our imperfect good works as good. Our imperfect obedience is counted as obedience. You can obey God. You know, you've heard me say this before. The hardest job of the preacher is to convince the non-Christian that he's totally depraved and to convince the Christian that he's not. Okay, the hardest job of the preacher is to convince the non-Christian he can't do anything good and to convince the Christian that he can. That's what I want to do with you here. Convince you, you can do good. Once you were dead in sins and trespasses, but not anymore. You have been made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit, and now you're able to do good works. These good works are the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul calls them in Galatians chapter 5. And there Paul says, against such fruit there is no law. And where there is no law, there's no condemnation. But it's not just that these works are worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It's not just that this fruit is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. We also need to know these works are offered to God through the intercession and mediation of Christ. As we offer our works to the Father, they pass through Christ. And Christ covers their defects and He presents them to the Father on our behalf in His name. 
Think of it this way. Let me just give you a silly little analogy of this. You know, if you got little kids, we got a lot of little kids in this church, and a lot of your kids like to draw pictures during the sermon and that kind of thing. And I've seen some of these, you know, these little stick figure drawings, okay? And you look at that as a parent, and you know, you might have to say, you know, this drawing is no Rembrandt. I mean, my kid's going to be a Rembrandt someday, right? We all think that about our kids. But not yet, okay? It's just a stick figure drawing. But what do you do with that picture? I mean, it's not perfect, but because of the effort that's been put into it, because of the relationship you have with your child, what do you do? You delight in it, and you even hang it on your refrigerator. Okay, well, here's the thing. Your stick figure drawings, your imperfect but good works, your stick figure drawings are hanging on God's heavenly refrigerator. He delights in your efforts to obey Him. God judges you with mercy. God judges us with mercy now. He will judge us with mercy at the last day. This is how John Calvin put it. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. This is how Calvin put it. He said, without reference to merit, so these works are not meritorious, without reference to merit, we still remarkably cheer and comfort the hearts of believers by our teaching when we tell them they please God in their works and are without doubt acceptable to Him. When God examines our works according to His tenderness, not His supreme right, He therefore accepts them as if they were perfectly pure. And for this reason, although unmerited, they are rewarded with infinite benefits, both of the present life and also of the life to come. What does Calvin say? He says, we cheer and comfort the hearts of believers by saying, God's pleased with your good works. He says, we want you to know, God doesn't judge you by his supreme right. He judges judges you with tenderness as a loving and merciful heavenly father and even rewards your imperfect but good works. He rewards them with eternal life. I would tell you to go read the Westminster Confession on this. and It's got a whole chapter on good works that that lays all of this out. Uh, in, In another Reformed Confession, the Second Helvetic Confession, it says, works which we do by faith are pleasing to God and approved by Him. That is the Reformed faith. God approves of our works. Our works meet with God's favor. God delights in our efforts to obey Him. We have to know God takes pleasure in and delights in our good but imperfect works. Think about Elizabeth and Zechariah who in Luke chapter 1 verse 6 are described this way. They are said said to be righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. Now does that mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless, that they never sinned because they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord? No, of course not. They were sinners like us. But that's just through, that's through Luke, as Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's how God evaluates the lives of His people, how He evaluates the lives of those who are striving and struggling and fighting to grow in faithfulness. He says, you're blameless. You're walking in all my commandments. When Isaiah speaks of the works of Israel as dirty rags, he's actually talking about apostates, people who don't trust in God at all, people who have fallen away. They're unbelievers. That's not how God views our works. He does not view your works as filthy rags. When you're trusting in Christ, he looks at your works in an entirely different way. Your good works are really good in God's sight. 
because they are works wrought in you by God's Spirit and their defects are covered by Christ's blood as He intercedes on your behalf. See, the whole of our justification, past, present, and future, is enfolded into Christ Jesus, the Righteous One, who both forgives us and transforms us. So do not forget these truths. Do not forget about Christ's intercession on your behalf. Do not make too little of the Spirit's work in your life. And know that God will reward your efforts to please Him at the last day when you will hear those words, those most precious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for this good news that You not only accept us in Christ Jesus, You also accept our works in Christ Jesus. May we be zealous to do good works that please You. Father, you know we long to hear those words at the last day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to live in such a way that we will hear those words ringing in our ears for all eternity. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.